You're listening to episode 178 of the Mad Chatters podcast, February 28th, 2018. Most everyone's mad here. <laughs> Welcome back to another episode of the Mad Chatters Podcast, your very important date with the happenings at Walt Disney World and around the Disney Universe. I'm Derek, and I'm joined by my fellow chatters, Matthew. Hey, hey, hey. And Jeremy. Whoa, On today's show, we're going to get very musical, talk about a few Disney legends and the music they made for the Walt Disney Company. And we have some emails from listeners that we want to get to. But before all of that, I do want to remind you that we are selling t-shirts. $18 a piece or $32 for two. You can go check them out on Facebook. We've got a light blue color, a Kelly green, and a cardinal red. So go check those out. And if that's something that you would like to purchase, we receive no profits off of these. This is just something fun that we're offering up to our listeners so go to our website, check them out, and if you would like some, email gear at madchatters.net. That being said, we have some emails that we want to respond to, so let's get to it. If you will tweet it, then we will read it. Yes, we will. Yes, we will. If you have questions, we'll make suggestions. Yes, we will. Yes, we will. First email is from uh, a listener named Emily from Kansas. She says, "Hey chatters, I'm sorry. There's an exclamation point. Hey chatters, hey you Emily. Asked for, uh, you asked <laughs> for embarrassing Disney park stories in your most recent episode, and I thought I'd share mine. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Parentheses. Jeremy. Full disclosure. I'm American, and no accent is required." <laughs> They don't let me read things anymore, so have no fear. Emily. Yeah. yeah. Your British accent will go down in infamy. <laughs> uh, Emily continues. When I was 13, I went to the Magic Kingdom with my parents and sister. This was during the old school paper fast pass system. And my mom was really anal about getting our fast passes and making sure we were on time. We had our fast pass for Splash Mountain. And right as we got into the queue, I realized I needed to use the bathroom. I just figured I could hold it for 20 minutes, go on the attraction, then bolt to the bathroom when it was over. Well, the 20-minute wait turned into over an hour wait, so by the time we were ready to board, I was seriously considering using the emergency exit and just getting out of there. But I knew my parents would freak out on me for just taking off by myself. We've all been there at some point. Um... I was with some friends, uh, Lindsay and Katie, and this happened, something similar happened to me in the Tower of Terror line, where, ooh, I, I should probably use the bathroom. Oh, it's just 15 <laughs> minutes, you know, and and then that turns into 30, turns into 45, and you are seriously questioning your life choices at that point. Okay, go ahead. I just want Emily to know she's not alone. Yeah, okay. Well, we don't know the story yet, so I... <laughs> <laughs> I almost made it through the whole ride. Almost made it. 
but I couldn't hold it any longer, and I ended up wetting my pants. Luckily or unluckily, it had been raining all day, so my whole family was decked out in those chic yellow ponchos, so none of it got on my mom or the seat. (laughs) Then uh, when we went down the drop, I casually lifted up my poncho, so my entire bottom half ended up soaked from the ride. Oh, that's clever. My mom asked me at one point why my clothes smell so weird, and I blamed it on that Disney water smell. I'm still so (laughs) embarrassed about it. 16 years later. (laughs) Disney water smell, just piss. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's a pro tip there to to wash yourself with the... uh, (laughs) <laughs> the, the water um this is that's that's very funny and very good i was concerned because when you said that she peed herself and then the poncho that sounds like it's like greenhouse gas effect like just holding that smell in and just ripening it and festering in the florida heat so well, she lifted it up I, yeah i got to that part i i understand this <laughs> but before that i was concerned so that was a riveting story <laughs> Yeah. Does your mother listen to the show? Is she just now realizing that you peed yourself <laughs> for the first time? Listen, if you think that the only pee that got on you was your own in Splash Mountain, you're very <laughs> naive. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> All right. Email number two from Ashley. Hi, Mad Chatters. I wanted to start out by saying that I've 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 loved your podcast. I've been listening for a little over a year, and each episode brings such joy to me. I just finished my Disney college program, and hearing your podcasts added even more magic as I experienced my time as a cast member. As I was listening to your latest Mad Q party, I was especially interested in hearing Derek saying he wanted that first-time experience at, at Fantasmic again. I have felt the same way for a long time. It's a common problem. Phantasmic is, and always has been, my favorite attraction show. Lately, it has been harder to love after seeing Disneyland's version. With each viewing, I would pick up on little errors or things that look out, looked outdated. During my last week of being a cast member, I was given the opportunity to take an exclusive tour. So my leadership asked me what I had been dying to have a backstage tour of. It took no time for me to recommend a backstage tour of Fantasmic. Oh boy. (laughs) Oh boy. I have no regrets. Getting to speak with the show coordinators and hearing how this gigantic show happens every night gave me such an appreciation for the show. They even talked with us about the infamous YouTube video of Dopey falling over the edge of the steamboat. Anytime someone asks me what my most magical moment while working at Walt Disney World was, I have to tell them how I stood at the helm of the Fantasmic Steamboat and how I did Mickey's Dance at the front of the island. Thank you so much for producing a wonderful show and giving giving each one of your listeners a little piece of the magic. Ashley. Okay, that's pretty cool. Yeah. I, do they offer anything like that to the at normal guest? I mean, there's probably some way to see the Fantasmic stuff, but I don't know if you can get on the boat. I was going to say, ride on the ship and stand on the island? I would like that. Yeah. Guys, if I had a little twirly thing in my hand, too, while I was <laughs> on the boat... I mean, For on, clarification, I don't know that she rode on the boat. She just stood at the helm. Oh. Still. That's I don't okay. Know if it, I'll, 
I'll stand there. And, da, 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 da. You can't see on for pin listeners as I do this. <laughs> Jeremy, do you remember when we saw Phantasmic at Disneyland and the Mark Twain was being worked on, and so they all just stood on the island and waved that? You don't realize how long that segment is until you just see them standing still, waving their little ribbons. It's like, oh my gosh, this is going on forever. It's a very kinetic scene, like you do, and you don't realize that till it's not kinetic anymore. Right. <laughs> still, thanks, Ashley. That's nice of you, and cool story. Our last email comes from Katie from New Jersey. She says, "Hey guys, we are heading down to the parks in April." So excited. And I wanted to do some resort hopping. Since the parks as of now are all closing at nine, I thought doing some resort hopping after close would be fun. I'm just not sure what the best method of transportation would be. I know you can take these buses from the parks to the hotels, but I would imagine after the parks close, the buses stop. I'm sure we can take a bus from the hotels to Disney Springs and then catch a bus from there to our hotel, but wanted to see if there was a better way you can suggest. And just a big, giant thank you for your podcast. The planning is still stressful, but having your tips throughout all of your episodes have made this whole planning process a lot easier to navigate. It's been 10 years since I was there last, and I didn't have, uh, I didn't have to do a lick of planning. So this is all so new to me. Katie. I guess the first question I would ask, there's nothing in here about whether she will have her car or not i'm guessing coming from new jersey she will not but she'll have maybe a rental car i don't know if you have access to a vehicle i would just say at that point it is better to just get back to your resort somehow and then that late at night just drive and if you're going to like animal kingdom lodge and some of those resorts um those are easy just to go to the gate tell them i'm going in to eat at whatever just going in to hang out and they'll let you now the resort monorail uh the monorail resorts might be a little more persnickety with you but that's if you have a car if not uh we can we can discuss discuss that yeah i mean even if she doesn't even if she does have a car i think it's a good question to answer because we do talk about resort hopping a lot on this show but it's not just as easy as hopping from resort to resort when you don't have a car and the buses are done running yeah this sounds just like you're throwing money away but if the the monorail resorts are pretty easy you just take the monorail and because it's usually running a couple hours after the park I guess my tip would be to Uber, because if you, if you're, you can go from Disney Springs to a resort pretty easily, but then you don't want to go back to Disney Springs and then back to your resort. So at that point, an Uber ride usually costs around $5 to $7 anywhere on Disney property. And if you're in a group of two or more, you're splitting that among you. So if you don't mind, you know, spending six or seven dollars, that's probably your best bet. But things like the monorail resorts, you can do all at once and all the resorts around the boardwalk. That's just one trip. And then you can walk around all of those. Yeah. Uh, if, if you've listened my last trip report quite a few shows ago and I talked about Uber, I had a 95% success rate with my Ubering at Walt Disney World. <laughs> and that would be my recommendation is... Take advantage of that because one, Walt Disney World is bigger than what you think it is uh, in the grand scheme of things. So if you're going from 
Animal Kingdom Lodge to, you know, the Contemporary or whatever, that that's a pretty good little hike. Uh, so th- it's still relatively cheap, though, for an Uber. And there are Ubers and Lyfts everywhere on property. It's not hard to find one at all. My recommendation is, like, if you're at a park or whatever, find – go to an area that's going to be easy and quick for the Uber to get into – The Contemporary is a great place because it's just right there off a main stretch that they can just whip in and pick you up and whip right back out. They don't have to necessarily get off the main path. Um, But yeah, it's it's super easy. And and like Derek said, if you have four or five different people that you can split these things with and it only costs you a couple bucks, it's it's totally worth it. Yeah. I think knowing the resorts that are closest to the park you're in, like you said the magic kingdom you you have easy access through a for a boat or monorail that will all run up to an hour after the park closes sometimes longer you have access to grand floridian polynesian contemporary and the wilderness lodge uh via boat to get out there and those are all great and you could hit all those in, in, a, in a night or whatever make a big old night of it um from ebcot or hollywood studios Maybe a little longer of a walk from Hollywood Studios, but you can take the little friendship boat, which is also a nightmare sometimes, over to the Boardwalk Resorts um, and Swan and Dolphin and things like that. Uh, And those are kind of all kind of the fun ones to hit, um, except for Animal Kingdom Lodge, which you can get to from Animal Kingdom uh, fairly quickly using the bus. So if you're going from a – I guess the the thing is going from a a park to a resort after close is is easy peasy. Just get get on the bus or the closest transportation there. Um, It's getting back to wherever you're staying because I don't know if you're at a Disney resort or somewhere else. And that's where I would just say do the the Uber thing. Yeah. Yep. All right. Let's let's close up the mailbox. If you were asked to name as many Disney movies as you could, you wouldn't get very far before running into a film that contains a song written by the two men we'll be talking about today, Richard and Robert Sherman commonly known as the Sherman Brothers, are responsible for dozens of the songs you know and love from your favorite Disney attractions and Disney movies. And this episode is all about them. We've put together a list of 11 times the Sherman Brothers made Disney magic. We want to do a deep dive into their songbook and break down their most iconic hits And as we go, we'll talk about their rich history with the Walt Disney Company. Uh, We'll probably share some stories that have been passed down from their time with the studio. Now, you might have noticed that we didn't record as many opening segments as we usually do. That's basically because we wanted to give as much time to this segment as we can. There's, There's a lot to talk about when it comes to the Sherman Brothers. But as we go, we are going to weave in a special Mad Chatters playlist If you don't know, this is the segment where we each pick three songs that fall in a certain category. And and by the end, we've created a playlist of nine songs. And for this episode, it may be a little obvious, but we're going to pick 
three iconic, essential Sherman Brothers songs each that we would put on a playlist. And we'll kind of do that as we go. All right, well, let's get to it. Uh, Now, before we talk about the Sherman's Disney hits, I feel like we should give a brief summary of their background and what led them to Disney. The Sherman brothers, uh, Robert Sherman being the older brother, was born in 1925, and Richard Sherman being the younger brother, born in 1928, so just three years apart. Uh, I think we can go ahead and say right now that Robert Sherman has passed away. He passed away in 2012, while Richard Sherman is still alive and well with us, and uh, I believe turning 90 this year, if my math is correct. Wow. So... Uh, and and every time I see him in some kind of a Disney uh, gathering that he shows up, he still seems pretty sharp and with it. And, you know, uh, I think he just wrote a song. Didn't he just write a, a song recently for the Disney parks, like in the last couple of years? Yeah, for the 60th anniversary, he wrote that fireworks song, The Kiss Goodnight, I think. Kiss Goodnight, yeah. yeah. So still working. Good for him. Yep. And he always performs at the D23 Expo, I feel like. Yeah. Yeah, maybe he just needs the money, but he's there. Uh, So they grew up, they were uh, uh, sons of Russian Jewish immigrants, and they kind of got their start writing songs together in 1951 in Tin Pan Alley. Uh, That's kind of where they got their start. And if you know anything about kind of Broadway history or just like music, music history in America, Tin Pan Alley was this place in New York City where they had all these like, stand-up pianos that people would rent out office space with and they were basically just writing advertising jingles and songs and just little things anything that they could do that would just kind of be quippy or whatever that they could sell and make make a a dime off of uh so that's kind of where they got their start that's where people like um oh gosh now their names just went right out of my head uh the gershwins i believe started in tim pan alley um like Oscar Hammerstein, I think, started in that area. Who's the other one? White Christmas. Irving Berlin started oh, yeah. in Tin Pan Alley. Um, so, yeah, there's a great documentary that was on PBS about the American musical and Broadway, a history of that with Julie Andrews. I think, Derek, you got this for me for Christmas one year. So good. Anyways, you should watch oh, that. Nice. Well, I know their dad was a musician who had apparently quite a few hits under his belt. He was a songwriter. Um, and I was, his name is Al Sherman. And also I think part of that tin pan, tin pan alley crowd, if I remember correctly from what I read. Uh, and I was looking up some of his hits. Now I had not heard of any of them, but Bing Crosby performed one. Uh, there were several big names that performed some of his songs, but what got me was he wrote a song called four sentimental reasons. And I thought it was the I Love You for Sentimental Reasons song, which is part of the Lindsay Lohan parent trap. (laughs) And I was freaking out because I'm like, oh my gosh, his sons were part of the original parent trap and he's part of the new parent trap. And then I realized they're totally different songs. (laughs) But he did write a song called that. Just it's a different song. But, but anyway. you know what's interesting, and and out of this Tim Pan Alley thing, you get uh, like people like Cole Porter during this time, and how they had a lot of those like weird word plays. You know what I'm talking about? Like uh, what's that what song by? I think it's Cole Porter. Where it's like it's wonderful, it's marvelous. You know, and like they just like 
twist words and like play with words and and almost create new words out of you know just kind of mashing together two words and that kind of thing and you definitely see that in the sherman brothers lyrical styles as well i mean think about how many zany and weird words that are i guess they weren't really words but now they are (laughs) considered actual legitimate words come out of their their writings so oh that's totally the sherman brothers yeah yeah um so uh robert was the lyricist and then uh dick richard was really the 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 musician of the two and uh there's a great documentary that i have seen in the past and rewatched, and derek watched for the first time and i don't know matt have you seen this documentary the boys not no okay it's produced by the Disney company, but it really is very raw and gritty as far as showing their relationship. And they had some rocky times. Uh, in fact, most of their partnership was rocky times. And it's kind of sad because we kind of like to have this romanticized view of particularly Disney things that everything was just roses and plums and fairies and giggles the whole time. But uh, one of the things that I liked that it said is, first off, they're brothers. And I don't know about you. I know Matt's an only child, but Derek has a brother. I have a brother. I love my brother. There's absolutely no chance we could ever work together on a daily, you know, uh, career-wise. There's just no way. We would we would murder each other. So the fact that you're working every single day with your brother, there's going to be conflict. Um, but then out of that conflict, you know, that, that's the friction you need sometimes to produce great art. Yeah, the, the movie, I don't think ever, or the movie, the, the documentary, I don't think ever portrayed them as disliking one another, but they admitted that they were just two very, very different people. Like like you said, Richard wrote the music, usually, while Robert wrote the lyrics, and that comes from their background. Like, before they got into music, Richard's dream was to be a symphony composer, and Robert's dream was to be a novelist or a writer, which he tried to do over and over again, and they just kind of kept writing songs together instead. Uh, but yeah, the movie constantly just harped on the fact that they were just different. Like there was one, so I forget who said this because they interviewed quite a few Disney people and randomly Ben Stiller. I don't know why he kept, <laughs> he kept popping up. I think he was a producer on this. On oh. this. Jewish, and he was Jewish. Yes, <laughs> maybe. Uh, but someone said that Robert thought Richard was too extravagant with his money and that he threw it around, while Richard thought Bob was close-fisted and uptight. Uh, he said, quote, their lifestyles were different, so they didn't enjoy being together. Uh, and, and you kind of got that even from their interviews. You can tell that Richard is just like lively and he plays the piano really haphazardly and loudly. And then Robert in his interviews is like methodical and very subdued. And it's it is kind of funny to me how how different they are as people. But I feel like that's the way a lot of siblings are. I mean, there there are those siblings that are, you know, very similar. But like I'm thinking about you and your brother and me and my brother, we're extremely different personalities, interests, uh motivations, it, hobbies, like uh, yeah, so it, it's just a natural thing. Yeah, I absolutely agree with that. But th- but that's what I mean. Like I've just always had this picture of them as basically the same person who loves doing the same things and watching this documentary it's like, oh, of course. Of course they were different people. Yeah. Definitely. Mm-hmm. And their wives were very different as well, and so that added to the friction that they didn't really enjoy hanging out with one another. So, uh, you know, it's a good documentary. Check it out. It is, yeah. 
So uh, leading up to their time with Disney, they were able to sell a few songs to various artists. One of their first big hits was a song that you could easily find online called Tall Paul. And this was a song that they actually sold to Disney because they needed a song for their, you know, golden star, Annette Funicello. So they sold this song, Tall Paul, to Disney. Annette Funicello sang it. It was a huge hit. And so they continued to write songs for other artists. They wrote about, uh, or they wrote quite a few for other artists. But around this time, they were also writing songs for Annette specifically. Things like Pineapple Princess, uh, Strummin' Song. They wrote about 15 for Annette. Well, since you brought up Pineapple Princess, I want to say that that is one of the songs on my playlist. And it's a deep cut. And I was not exposed to this song until I bought the best of the Sherman Brothers CD, whatever that came out a few years ago. Um, But let me tell you why I love this song. It is pure 1950s innocence and wonderful Polynesian goodness that is on the same level and complements the Tiki Room perfectly like this song could be easily inserted into the enchanted tiki room and and it's seamless and so i really like this song i think matt i don't know have you heard this song no i think you would enjoy it because you like that polynesian feel as well and it's very much that (laughs) with the still guitar yeah (laughs) yeah there you go Yeah, this song, the Tiki Room, and the Orange Bird song, all in my head, are like the same genre. <laughs> yes, the same song. <laughs> <laughs> Basically. That um, Tall Paul song was uh, the first time, her, her cover of it was the was the first time a uh, a female was, was part of the top 10 in the rock and roll charts. Whoa. Yeah, I thought that was interesting. Annette Funicello female rock pioneer. <laughs> I mean, it was a huge hit for them because I, I on the documentary, it talked about how some of their early ones they thought were going to be huge and then just completely faded. And then this one just kind of stuck around. So I, yeah, I had no idea it was that big though. That's cool. So anyway, they wrote all these songs for Annette Funicello. They made hit after hit. So Walt finally asked them to come and write for his movies. And this is where we get to number one on our list and number one is simply live action films starring Disney darlings and by Disney darlings we mean those actors and actresses that Walt constantly went back to to star in his films namely Fred McMurray Haley Mills uh, Annette Funicello herself starred in a couple Leslie Ann Warren starred in a couple of these and a lot of the songs from the early 60s were collaborations between Walt and the Sherman Brothers. So I know the very, very first one they did was the Medfield Fight Song, which if you've ever seen The Absent-Minded Professor, which is, Flubber was a remake of this movie. The Absent-Minded Professor, uh, the song that plays during the opening credits is the Medfield Fight Song. And that's the first time that the Sherman Brothers wrote for a Disney film. But I mean, gosh, there are just so many in this category. Um, For me, The Parent Trap sticks out because that's a movie I grew up watching 
all the time. The original one with the Haley with Haley. I was gonna say the Haley Mills girls, uh, but Haley Mills <laughs> <laughs> playing both characters. Yeah, that that film is is interesting in general because uh, she she definitely has a fine line between annoying and <gasps> charming. How dare you! <laughs> yeah, even the music in that is a little too sugary sweet sometimes. Well, it's funny that you say that because the first song on my playlist is The Parent Trap. It is the song that plays during the opening credits, which, by the way, I love those opening credits because it has the little marionettes that act out the scenes. And this song is performed by Annette Funicello and Tommy Sands. I don't really know anything about Tommy Sands, uh, but they do this duet. And it's the song that's like, the, there's that line, lead them back to love with a velvet glove because they're much too old for the strap. Uh, and it almost feels like a like a big band song. Like there's big brass instruments and it's just a fun little two, maybe it's two and a half minutes long. It can't be much longer than that. But that's the first song on my playlist, The Parent Trap. Loved this movie growing up and I had to include a song from it. If their loves on skids, treat your folks like kids. Are your family trees gonna snap? So to make them dig, first you gotta rig. Uh, what do you gotta rig? The parent trap. Uh-huh. If they lose that sing and they just won't swing, then the problem falls in your lap. When your folks are square, then you must prepare. What do you gotta prepare? The parent trap. To set the bait, recreate the date. I'm feeling bad about my playlist now. Mine are all so on the nose compared to y'all's little bougie deep cuts. <laughs> that I, That's my deepest cut of the three. It's so underground. It's just... Did you watch that movie growing up, Matt? I, I watched it a few times on the Disney Channel, the old school Disney Channel, but I, I don't remember ever liking it or really watching it all the way through. Mm, that hurts my heart. I didn't get into the live action things that weren't, you know, adventure based. See, we had on the same VH- VHS, we had the Parent Trap back to back with the Parent Trap 2. Oh. And I used to watch those quite a bit. I didn't even I didn't even see the new one, like the remake in the, the 90s. Was it the 90s? Yeah. Yeah, I just never got into that. Oh, so good. You know what I remember about it? Was that every time it was going to come on Disney Channel, they would show the like the same clip of the of the girls singing "Let's Get Together," yeah. And I always, as a little boy, just thought that was the most annoying thing in the entire world. <laughs> and it made me not want to watch the movie. It's Haley Mills harmonizing with Haley Mills. <laughs> I understand this, but at that moment, like that's an annoying song. And those two girls, whoever they are, are very annoying. <laughs> as an like a seven year old boy. I, no, I get that. I get that. Okay, well, let's talk about some of the songs in this category. I've already mentioned The Absent-Minded Professor. You've got The Parent Trap. You've got other Haley Mills movies like Summer Magic. Um, and I thought it was interesting. I learned from that documentary that Robert's favorite song that they ever wrote was in Summer Magic, and it was On the Front Porch, which, to be completely honest with you, I've seen that movie. I don't even remember that song. I like Me that. either. In fact, I had to look on my iTunes, because that is on that sherman brothers greatest hit cd as well and it's one that i guess i've skipped over and don't really remember but you know when somebody says that's their favorite that they've ever written when they have such a catalog like the sherman brothers do that's worth taking note of and saying well there must be something special about this song or something at least 
emotionally, you know, deep or connecting or whatever yeah. the words are. Yeah, I, I don't that you that movie was on Netflix when I watched it. I don't think it is anymore. But I gotta say, I really enjoyed it. And the songs that stuck out to me were "Ugly Bug Ball," sung by Burl Ives, and "Femininity." I thought those were the two best songs from that. You know, the thing about these uh, that I noticed about the Sherman Brothers in some of their song titles, they're not the most uh, ear friendly. You know, they, they don't really like they catch your attention, but they don't really like draw you in as far as that's a song I could listen to a lot, like Ugly Bug Ball. <laughs> like, yeah. Like, what? <laughs> that's true. But it's good. It's really good. And several of these songs were played on Main Street for a while, like Femininity. Uh, there's a song they wrote for The Happiest Millionaire, which is later in the 60s, uh, but it's included in this category uh, called Fortuosity. And I know that still plays on Main Street. Yeah, that almost made it into my playlist. It is one of my, like before I knew that's what it was, I'd always loved hearing that on Main Street. And then when I connected it, it made me appreciate it all the more. But um, that's a good one. Yeah, I like that one. Did you guys have any other songs from this category that stick out to you? No, honestly, just all around. Not my favorite category. There are other things I like better from them, but no. Well, it's funny. They fall in the same category because they're in movies from that era, but almost in sound, they're all very similar too. Very much so. And to me, like, I appreciate a lot of these live action films, but they remind me of the same way that Tin Pan Alley songs were viewed in the 40s and 50s in that these were just songs that were kind of quickly produced and they made you feel good and they served a purpose. And then you forget them just as quick as you got them because the next one's right behind it. And a lot of these live action films, um, they all kind of run together and they, you know, you've seen one, you've seen them all in in principle. Um, And and I may get crucified by some of these (laughs) fans of these, you know, (laughs) but um, that's just kind of how I feel about a lot of this. The the 1960s live actions, kind of once they got into them, I feel like they were, they were easy to make. So that's what they were doing. And some thought went into them, but you're not really breaking any new ground here. Yeah, I see what you mean. Like, they're all very different stories, but it's not ex- it's not like risks were taken with any of these. Not at all. Not at all. Yeah. All right, well, let's move on then. Number two is Walt Disney's Wonderful World of Color, which debuted on TV on September 24th, 1961. Now, this was sort of a continuation of Walt Disney's um, regular TV show that dated back to Disneyland, which was, of course, kind of invented as this uh, wide marketing TV way to advertise Disneyland and what they were doing there. Um, and then that, that after Disneyland opened and they no longer needed that, it changed to Walt Disney Presents. And these were just little, uh, you know, times for Walt to get on and tell about different shows and different uh, movies that projects that he was working on. Um, well, when color television became a thing, and I think it was only available through NBC at this point, because Disneyland and Walt Disney Presents were uh, ABC shows. And uh, Walt Disney had once said that he would stand on his head in a Macy's window 
to make this deal with NBC happen so that it could be in color. So it's one of those things where Walt, you know, was being Walt, seeing the cutting edge, the future coming, I need this show to be in color, and this is going to be the name of it, Walt Disney's Wonderful World of Color. And the Sherman Brothers, uh, by, by this point, having been with the Disney Company for a few years, uh, wrote the theme song, which is still got a lot of um, traction even today via the World of Color show at Disney's Cal- Do they still use it, or did they change it for some other blasted anniversary thing? As far as I know, the opening notes are still the wonderful world, of- which I love when Disney does stuff like this, when they bring back old songs. Yeah, the song itself is called uh, The World is a Carousel of Color. And um, that, that kind of just, you know, when, when Tinkerbell came across the screen and flicked her wand and it would suddenly have blue, red, and yellow. And uh, I mean, it was, it was surely a sight to behold in, in these days for people, um, this being a kind of a new thing, color television. Yeah, I love this song. It almost made my playlist. Um, I always go to this, but it's it's just my go-to. It, it has that charm and innocence. I mean, it's just a beautiful little song. And then the way they have incorporated it in California Adventure out there in that nighttime show is brilliant. And, and yeah. I, think, I think it still is involved. Uh, I know when we saw the anniversary show, it opened with that. And then it also closed with it with the very dramatic color. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I said the wonderful world of color. But I think that's like the modern little v- line that they added to it. But you're right. The world is a carousel of color. That's how it starts. Yeah, and they contributed several other songs uh, throughout the short, the short, uh, well, I guess seven years of this show uh, before it changed kind of the the feel again. But uh, they changed, they they contributed lots of in original songs to the uh, to some of the show. I thought it was interesting just reading some of the stuff on D twenty three about the show that um, in one of the episodes, Wonderful World of Color, it featured Annette Funicello singing the Strumming song. Oh. which uh, was one of those early Annette Funicello hits that they had written for her in the late 50s. So that means the Sherman Brothers got royalties for two songs in that episode. So, uh, yeah. Making bank. Now, on that album you keep talking about, Jeremy, of their greatest hits, there are a few that were written for that duck. I don't know how to say it. Is it Ludwig von Drake? Oh, Ludwig, yeah. Oh, I don't... That duck. <laughs> because <laughs> I was saying, are you? I was going to say Ludwig, but I knew that wasn't right. Be- like the Spectrum song, isn't that on the album? Yeah. Red, yellow, blue, green. Yeah. Blue, blue, blue. yeah. That was for this program at, at one point. You know who yeah, voiced so Professor Von Drake? Yes. Shoot. Yes, uh, Paul Freeze. <laughs> Ghost host Paul Freeze. Yeah. Yeah, and this ties in another fun little Disney fact. You know, television, of course, as Matt said, was still a relatively new thing. And it was unknown whether or not it was going to be successful and popular. So Disney did not want to use Mickey Mouse and Minnie Mouse and and their more core characters in the beginning because you don't want to associate Mickey Mouse with a failure uh, or a failing project. So that's why you have characters like Ludwig and you have Tinkerbell and Jiminy Cricket who are kind of second string characters if you would. Wow. Second string compared to like Mickey <laughs> and Minnie. I don't want 
<laughs> save your emails, folks. Save your emails. Uh, but you know, then you—it's you, elevating them though, because television was so popular that now you, you see the lasting power of. Uh, unfortunately, Ludwig has kind of gone the way of Scrooge McDuck, you know, over overshadowing him. But um, Tinkerbell and and Jiminy Cricket—I mean, they're hugely popular still. Ludwig is still around. He's he's prominent, very prominent on uh, Mickey Mouse Clubhouse. That is true. You're you're right about that. He does pop up, and that's kind of when they brought back also Horace and uh, Clarabelle. They kind of yeah. tapped into some of those old characters, which I love. You know yeah. that they are reintroducing these sort of, for lack of a better word, lost characters. Hmm. Now, yeah, I think wonderful. I think the song ran until '69. And then I think after that, like they kind of kept this program, but they had different names throughout the years. But I think that was the end of this song being used. Because I grew up in the 90s with the Sunday night movie on the wonderful world of Disney when Michael Eisner would give the introduction every time. And this song was not played. (laughs) No. It was the 90s. It was probably something by like O-Town or, or 98 Degrees. No, that's... that's O-Town. <laughs> that's a great <laughs> guess. But no, I looked it up today and I watched the old introduction and it is so good. It's like animation where the camera, you know, quote unquote camera, spins around the castle and you see all these classic Disney characters peeking out of windows. And it plays a medley of When You Wish Upon a Star and A Whole New World. Oh, I don't remember this, and I used to watch that a lot, so that's interesting. I'll send you a link, because it was bringing back all the memories. Mm. <laughs> yeah, I also love the, uh, speaking of these kind of things, like the Disney afternoon theme, you know? Like, that's pure nostalgia. I wonder who wrote that. They they deserve a focus on the Mad Chatters. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> they, need, they deserve their own show. Uh, number three is the kind of the first full-length feature film that the Sherman Brothers worked on as far as music goes, and that is a, a film that's really not known for its music, if you want to know the truth. I mean, I don't really think most people can tell you some of the songs off the top of their head that are featured in this film, but they wrote them nonetheless, and that is The Sword in the Stone. So any of these songs, you know, uh, tickle your fancy? Yes! I, see, it's two of them. I loved this movie growing up, and I loved the music growing up. Um, I don't know if it's Higgitus Figgitus or Higgitus Fidgitus, but it's Merlin's little magic word song, and he's packing up packing up his house to go with uh, um, Wart, the boy, uh, off on his little adventure. That's a great song. And the um, that's what makes the world go round, up and down. That, that song is great, too, when there's squirrels singing about love and... Uh, those are two great I, I would consider them classic songs that are just untapped. They have the potential. Well, Hitchitus Fidgetus is a great example of what Jeremy was talking about earlier where they they made up words that became part of the Disney lexicon and that's a great one. Yeah, I mean I don't wanna like poo-poo on Robert Sherman at all. May he rest in peace. Uh, but sometimes I hear songs like that, and I'm like, I, I mean, come on, I could have wrote that. You know, like, I could just boogity 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 you know? <laughs> like, Look at me, I'm a lyricist. <laughs> uh, there's nothing. Listen, the the genius of the Sherman Brothers is nowhere in their lyrics or the music, for that matter. It, it's some magical concoction of all the above, mm. mixed with marketing know-how and just lasting. Just the ability for it just to stick, because yes. I mean, everything they did is so simple, 
musically and lyrically. Uh, it's it's just it's one of those things. It's hard to explain why they are what they are, but they just are. I think this is a good place to insert a quote that I didn't quite know where to put in in the show, and that was something that Bob said in that documentary. And people used to say to him, "You write kitty songs," and he said, "No, I write songs for kitties, and there's a difference." And I was like, "That is really deep," because just because you are writing songs geared towards children doesn't mean that they have to be shallow and stupid and mind-numbing. He still was able to put a lot of heart, charm, and depth into those lyrics, but still kept it surface level that they could understand. Yeah. They're just earworms. Like, their songbook is filled with earworms that you don't have to... They may not make you think so hard, but you will not stop humming them. Yeah. Yeah. Well, The Sword in the Stone may not have the most memorable songs from their collection, but I mean, it's significant because A, Matt loves them, and B, I mean, you know, Walt finally trusted them to be part of one of his Aunt Disney, Walt Disney Animation Studios films. So this is the first one. Number four on our list of 11 times the Sherman Brothers made Disney magic, we're going to go to the parks. For this one, uh, they have written for movies at this point. They've written for the TV show, but now Walt tasks them with a classic beloved attraction at the Magic Kingdom, Walt Disney's Enchanted Tiki Room. Now, some of the songs in this attraction are were already written by other artists and just were a good fit for this attraction. But the theme song, the opening song, the Tiki 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 Room was written and composed by the Sherman Brothers. And it is my first choice for my Sherman Brothers playlist. I'm all the obvious ones tonight, folks. Just, just up front. That's, that's, that's where I'm coming from. In the tiki, 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 tiki room. In the tiki, 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 tiki room. All the birds sing, word, and the flowers croon. In the tiki, 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 tiki room. Welcome to a tropical hideaway. You lucky people, you. If we weren't in the show starting right away, we'd think the audience too. All together in the Tiki 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 Room in the Tiki Tiki. Room. Uh, yeah, I, I love the Tiki Room. I don't want to steal any of your thunder and explaining it, but just the vibe and the feel. I mean, it's just right down my alley. And just make me a little fruity drink and play Tiki Room, and I'm I'm set. Yeah, I mean, I've gushed about this song as well and in this show and and just the the place that it has in my heart and always will. And I tell you, as long as I'm on this earth, I hope that it always is as well, because uh, I don't think I could take it being removed. And I'm so glad that I didn't have to suffer through the, the under new management change. Uh, of course, when we sort of became Disney Parks fans, it was already under new management, if you would. <laughs> and so, uh, you know, for us, it kind of, the bar was set very low. But then as you kind of learn about the roots of this attraction, and then they retroactively went back to those roots. Oh, it's just, it's just wonderful. It is pure Disney sappy goodness. And the, uh, the Sherman Brothers just tapped into that and nailed it. Yeah. Do you think they also wrote the dialogue in between, like, you should sing solo, see solo, we can't hear you? Surely I, they I did. Imagine so, yeah. You know, that, that, that dialogue seems to flow pretty naturally from what you get from them in general. That's true. 
I love the line, um, which is so stupid, but it always makes me laugh, where, where they say, um, the birds in the back are called macaws. Why? Because of their claws? No, because they're macaws. I think that's funny. <laughs> but it's sung so quickly that the average guest would not pick up on that, you know? Yeah. And, and I would, I, I kind of wish, you know, we, we have our time machine every now and then here on the show, but if I had a legitimate time machine, I would love to go back to those early years of, of um, Disneyland, well, when this attraction was put in place, and just to be able to sit in the back and watch those audiences take in the show, because uh, we're jaded in 2018 as far as what the technology is and the humor and, you know, that kind of thing. So, you know, most people go into it and your average park goer just kind of sits there. But I imagine that when this thing first came out, audiences were probably just hooting and hollering the whole time. Yeah. And it would have been like 30 minutes long at that point, too. Yeah. They've, they've trimmed it. Now, I, I know what you mean, Jeremy, and usually people are like that by the end. But I uh, I would go out. I would go on a limb and say that usually when I see this, since the Tiki Room song is the opening number, by that point, people are still kind of swaying back and forth in their suites and kind of <laughs> bouncing. You know, it's just that kind of song. Like, da 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 Number five brings us to the parks in a much more lasting, uh, just a huge way, in that I, I think that this one event uh, changed the, the way the parks, changed the parks forever. And that is the 1964 World's Fair, which featured several attractions that were designed and developed by uh, WED Enterprises, what we've become Walt Disney Imagineering. Um, but the two most, probably most memorable for us these days, and of course featuring Sherman Brothers songs, uh, was It's a Small World and The Carousel of Progress. Now, the It's a Small World was the, um, was the pavilion at the World's Fair for UNICEF. UNICEF. I was going to say United Way, but <laughs> UNICEF. Carousel, Carousel of Progress was what, GE? Yes. Yeah. And oh, so this was things that these corporations had hired, you know, the Disney company to design these shows for. Uh, not anything related to the parks, but hereafter became related to the parks and in a very lasting, memorable, and beloved way. And when you think about, I mean, I don't think there's any song we're going to mention tonight that might be as universally known and recognized as It's a Small World. Or It's a Small World After All, which is the theme song for the for the attraction. I mean, you can go anywhere and sing this little song in any language, and people are, they might not know what it is or what it relates to, but they're going to know the tune and the song. Yeah. And that's an exaggeration, obviously, but more than anything else we're going to talk about, this is like their, the peak of their talent. I mean, I don't know how true this is, but a lot of like fun fact, quote unquote, websites, when they mention this song, they always say it's the most sung song in the world or the most recognized song in the world. Again, I don't know how they get that fact, but it's always said. I've, I've heard that it's the most sung because it plays on a loop and has played on a loop for the last 50 years. Mm -hmm. and not only in one place around the world, but I think it's in every Magic Kingdom style park in the world correct so it just plays and loops and loops i love this song it's not on my list because i thought it would be pretty obvious to put this on the list it should be on your list though uh if you have your own sherman brothers list this <laughs> song to me again is 
that brilliant Sherman Sherman brother style of just deep, but not uh, but not overwhelming and, and and understandable. And stay with me on this. Stay with me on this. Oh no! Uh, <laughs> I consider this song to be on the same level as something like a Jesus Loves Me type song, where it's surface level, very simple, but it has a very deep truth that is being implemented into the hearts and minds of a child that they don't realize how significant that truth is. Mm. Yes. Yeah. Because it's not just teaching that the earth physically is small. There's the lyric, there's so much that we share that it's time we're aware we're aware it's a small world after all oh my word let me get to that <laughs> lyric it's a small world after all which is something that we still have to remind people of today that we all share so much why is there so much discord in the world today totally and and in that documentary one thing that richard sherman said that stuck with me and it just spoke to my heart because is that he said People used to say to him, oh, you know, you wrote that little novelty song. And he said, we didn't write a novelty song. We were writing a prayer for peace. And, and, you know, you take out the little earworm jingle and you slow those lyrics down or you put them on a different sort of backdrop. And they really do jump out as, wow, that's those are are really beautiful lyrics and very hopeful. And and it's just pretty. I always think about that Golden Girls episode. I was going to say this. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> where they're at Walt Disney World and she's in yeah. the bar and she does like the Casablanca joke, you know, and the piano player starts playing It's a Small World and he plays it in this beautiful, slowed down It's a world of laughter mm-hmm. It's a world of tears You know, and, and, then, and then he kind of, the joke is he speeds it up into It's a Small World at the end but, you know, at first you're like hey, that sounds familiar, but wow, that's pretty, and then you're like, oh, it's a small world yeah there's a great story behind this song where Walt, when he was envisioning this ride, his idea was to have all the dolls sing the national anthem from their country. And they were like, oh, okay, let's hear it. And as they were hearing it, it just, he's, the word he, Robert Sherman used was a cacophony. It was just yeah. like this hot mess. And so they were like, okay, let us work on something. So they wrote It's a Small World really, really quickly. And Walt liked it. And then when they realized they had more time, I think they wrote two or three other songs that were more complex. But Walt was like, no, I, it's a small world after all. I like that one. Let's go with that one. Um, the other one in, in a very similar uh, frame, optimism and uh, mem- mem- uh, easy to remember is the theme song from the Carousel of Progress. Uh, There's a great big, beautiful tomorrow. Um which debuted with this this show in 1964 and then made its way to the parks. Uh, supplemented for a time with another song the Sherman Brothers wrote, but this is now the theme song once again. And um, I would venture to say that this is probably on, I don't want to give it a number, like top five or top ten, but it's certainly on a list of the favorite favorite theme park songs for Disney park fans. I mean, it's up there, and and it immediately brings you into Walt Disney World. Not even just you know Carousel of Progress or Tomorrowland, but it just you, you feel like you're at the Magic Kingdom, you know, hearing that hearing that melody. Yeah, and I don't think you should skip over the best time of your life, the other Carousel of Progress song. 
Oh, no, I was just sticking with the 1964 uh, Carousel of Progress. Oh, I see what you're saying. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, since we're not going to get to it later, I feel like maybe we should mention it now. Um, it, yeah, it has made my playlist before. If you recall, I don't remember what the playlist was. Oh, songs about making memories. Or not making memories. That was my other song. Uh, it was the inspirational 2018 New Year yeah, thing. Yeah, that's right. That's uh, right. Yeah, I do like the song. No, I was just I was just sticking with the task as given. Gotcha. Both of these songs, classic Sherman Brothers. Yeah, uh, that one just didn't have the lasting power. I, th- I think it's a great big beautiful tomorrow speaks so much clearer. You know. Yeah, obviously they thought so because after like a decade and a half, they were like, "Eh, let's bring back that other one. We liked it better." Yeah. I think my favorite part about that song is the way that it just builds right from the beginning. Like it just, you know, it's like do 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 do. Yeah, yeah. And you know, it, it really does kind of build itself up and just explode. That you're like, yeah, it is a great big beautiful tomorrow. Yes. <laughs> yeah, and you know, for for the casual Disney goer now, the Carousel of Progress is not like the first attraction people think of when they think of Walt Disney World. So I remember when Tom Hanks was doing press for Saving Mr. Banks, and he went on. Jimmy Fallon's Tonight Show, and he sang There's a Great Big Beautiful Tomorrow, and Disney fans on Twitter were freaking out. Like, this thing got so <laughs> many shares on my Twitter and on my Facebook page, because they were like, he sang that song, that's awesome. If you like um, to see footage of Walt kind of letting his hair down and not being uh, the stoic Walt Disney sometimes that we think of, there's a good clip of Walt and the Sherman brothers singing great big, beautiful tomorrow together, I guess right around the time that this would have been opening and they wanted to promote it at Disneyland. And you know, Walt was not a singer <laughs> in the same way that I'm not a singer, but that didn't stop him in this, in this uh, moment. And, and they kind of do this little like heel kick where they jump and like do that little, there's a great big, and uh, it, it's, it's nice. It's, 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 you can tell it was kind of off the cuff and, Sure, they planned it, but it wasn't so rigid. Yeah. One of the brothers in, a, in an interview said that when they wrote this, they they felt like they were basically writing Walt's theme song because it's hopeful oh, yeah. and enthusiastic about the future. And that's Walt. Yes. I love ooh, I love that. Hmm. I'm getting all the feels tonight on this show. Hmm. Uh, well, as Matt mentioned, that the World's Fair was certainly a, a big uh, accomplishment for the Sherman brothers. But in my humble opinion, number six on our list is the crown jewel of the Richard Sherman or the Sherman brothers uh, accomplishments in their career. And that is the music of Mary Poppins. Uh, if you've seen Saving Mr. Banks, then you kind of know the backdrop in which that this music was written. Uh, you know, by this time they had established themselves very well as this the the, the songwriters for the Disney Studio. Um, they were I, I, even in this documentary it talks about there was it was not an unknown thing that Walt Disney really liked these guys and they were kind of you know his favorites and he enjoyed being around them and enjoyed their work and enjoyed what they had to offer. So when he asked them to take on the task of uh, adapting. Uh, this book into a feature film, they not only worked on the songs, I believe they also worked on the script and kind of the storyboarding of of what this film would become. And something that's mentioned in the documentary is how they took the book home and sort of read through it and underlined the chapters that they thought would translate well to the screen. 
And when they met up the next time with Walt to talk about which scenes they should use in which chapters, they had the exact same chapters marked. And they just knew, wow, this is it. This is a sign. Yeah, this is the part in the documentary where they said that Walt put them, like he asked them to work for the studio at this point and to be under contract. And they were the only songwriters that Walt ever had under contract. Which is uh, an accomplishment, you know, certainly to say. Um, This has a song that's on my list, my playlist song, and it was Walt Disney's favorite song. And that is Feed the Birds. Um, One of the songs that it's funny, not probably, you know, a song that people necessarily gravitate to when you think of songs from Mary Poppins, at least the average person, you're going to think supercalifragilisticexpialidocious or go fly a kite or whatever. Uh, But Feed the Birds, Walt loved this song. Um, And I think it kind of summarized his vision, just like Great Big Beautiful Tomorrow, that, that, you know, in, in the same idea that this old bird woman was offering her crumbs to the birds to help nourish them and to uh, help them to grow. He kind of saw himself in that same vein as as feeding the minds and the hearts of, of um, the American children. And as the story goes and has been confirmed by the Sherman brothers that they would meet with Walt every Friday. And in the course of their meetings, uh, he would you know tell them to go to the piano and Richard Sherman would sit and play feed the birds for him and the thing that's mentioned in this documentary that just ripped my heart out is after walt passed away richard sermon said on fridays he would still go to walt's office and play feed the birds for him feed the birds toppins a bag toppins 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 a bag feed the birds that's what she cries while overhead her birds fill the skies all around the cathedral this was the song in complete honesty that i always fast forwarded or I would like leave the room during because the scene itself is kind of boring but as the years have passed I've grown an appreciation for the song well then there's uh, you know supercalifragilistic <laughs> yeah <laughs> another word that the Sherman brothers made up well I think another song though that's that's interesting and has an interesting story behind it is Spoonful of Sugar and they talk about how they were uh, they wrote a song for Mary Poppins right there that was very slow, if I remember correctly. And Julie Andrews didn't like the song. It, yes, it was called For the Eyes of Love. I mean, no, no, no. Through the Eyes of Love. Yeah, Through the Eyes of Love. And Julie Andrews was the one that kind of said, listen, this song really just doesn't fit the character. I don't feel like Mary Poppins would say this or convey these kind of emotions through the song or whatever. And so they kind of went back to the drawing boards as far as, well, we need a song for this scene. And Bob Sherman talks about how he met his son after school one day and the son had their vaccinations in school, you know, different time. <laughs> and uh, and he said, oh, they gave you a shot? And no, no, they just put the medicine uh, with a dropper onto a little cube of sugar and had helped the medicine go down. And... He ran in the next day and, and he said, or maybe he called Richard or maybe it's the next day in the office. I don't know exactly, but he was, the first thing he said to him was, 
a spoonful of sugar helps the medicine go down. And Rachel's like, what? And he's like, no, that's that's the lyric there. And, and you know, their eyes lit up and they both had that aha moment. And they just went right to work with it. You know what? I always associate this song with the scene in the movie where she's giving them their their vitamins or medicine stuff at night. But it's nothing to do with that. They're not even related in the movie. But when you think about it, you I always pictured them getting their little flavored uh, their little flavored medicine or whatever it is. But it's the scene in the movie where they're cleaning up the cleaning up their rooms. But this this movie is packed with with songs. I mean, you think of the average movie, uh, even musicals, and you get you know three or four songs. But it's like supercalifragilisticexpialidocious, expialidocious. Uh, Chim Chim Cheree, Let's Go Fly a Kite, I Love to Laugh. Uh, Jolly Holiday. Jolly Holiday is just one after the other after the other. Uh, What's the bank song? The the, the little counting. And and a lot of the lyrics, you know, are a lot of the even the talking parts are lyrical and, and musical. Yeah. The next song on my playlist is also from this film. And I think it's appropriate that we have two songs from this film, because like you said, this is like the definitive Sherman Brothers project. Uh, Chim Chim Cheree actually won the Oscar for Best Original Song. This was one of two Oscars the Sherman Brothers won. The other Oscar they won was composing the score for this film, which I guess we should have said they also composed many film scores along with these songs. Uh, Chim Chim Cheree Chim was on this cassette tape I had from McDonald's a long time ago. And that was, I think, the only Disney music I actually owned. And it, it was called Buddy Songs. And it had, like, Chim Chim Cheree and uh, You've Got a Friend in Me, uh, Best of Friends from Fox and the Hound. And it only had eight songs. So I listened to this cassette tape all the time. <laughs> so I think that's why Chim Chim Cheree sticks out to me because I've heard it probably more than most Disney songs. But it's good, too. Like, it's a great tune. I love that Dick Van Dyke and Julie Andrews both sing on it. Yeah, I add it to your playlist because it's good and it's a Sherman Brothers <laughs> classic. Oh, Step in Time, that's another one from this movie. Oh, yes. Uh, Dick Van Dyke, who was my inspiration for my beautiful British accent on last week's mm. show. Ah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, Chim Chim Chimpanzee. That is the song on Saving Mr. Banks. They kind of, in the opening, uh, scene they play that musical and then Colin Firth speaks the the opening lyrics. That's right. Oh, that's so good. That, that is yeah. genius. That's on level with the Lana Del Rey slowing down the um, Sleeping Beauty song. Like that's genius. Yeah. 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 What is that? Winds in the east. That's right. Yeah. Something is brewing. About to begin. <laughs> All right, well, that brings us to number seven on our list. That is The Jungle Book, the 1967 film. I believe this was the first Disney film to be released after Walt's passing the previous December. Um, In fact, I think the story with this film goes that they had another songwriter all lined up 
for this film. They had other, I think, even another vision for the film. And Walt just did not love this first draft. So he threw it out and he brought in his trusted Sherman brothers and he told them to have more fun with it. Like the apes especially, have more fun, make it more lighthearted. And I believe they kept bare necessities from that first draft. So they did not write that. But all the other songs, I think, were written by them. So you've got Trust in Me by Ka. You've got uh, That's What Friends Are For, sung by the Vultures. Little fun fact, Trust in Me, the tune was written as a, it was a song that was cut from Mary Poppins called uh, The Land of the Sand, I believe. What? Yeah, you haven't heard this No. Yeah, so that kind of that, the the music, not the lyrics, obviously, they kind of repurposed that for the, for Ka's song, Trust in Me, in the Jungle Book. Interesting. Well, is it okay if I uh, give another song from my playlist? Because there's one from this movie. No, because it's mine. Uh, <laughs> okay, go ahead. Go ahead. Let's say it together. Okay. On three. One, two, three. I, I want to be, be like, like you. you. Till yeah. I'm grown. Oh, oh my gosh. <laughs> <laughs> what? No, this is, that's a great song. <laughs> this is one of my top five Disney songs of all time. Easily. I love how energetic it is. I love the trumpet solo in the middle. I love the scatting. Everything about this song makes me dance and makes me so happy. Makes you so happy. I liked watching some of the bonus features on the old DVD version of this where uh, Louis Prima and his band are literally like marching around the soundstage. Uh, during, I, I think that most of that middle middle part, with I mean, obviously the trumpet solo and stuff was Im- improvised. And if I'm not incorrect, the animators animated that sequence to suit what Louis Prima and the band had ad libbed during that time. Because I mean, they're just literally marching around the soundstage, playing their playing their instruments, and going to town. And you can tell that, that it has that feeling when watching watching the movie. Yeah, I mean, it wouldn't be a true jazz song if they didn't improvise a little bit. I love that Phil Harris, who voiced Baloo, who had no jazz talent or history or anything, and he does the scatting back. Yeah, but he's really bad at it. Like, oh, it's awful, but you just love it because. What's the one thing he says about Bobby? (laughs) (laughs) And you know, like, he just was feeling it in that moment. That's all it was. And I love that the song just kind of fades out because isn't it blue when he, as his costume is falling off and yeah. he's like da 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 ba do ba da ba da ba da and like that's how the song ends. <laughs> it's like I, was was that good on your guys' end? You guys, yeah. yeah, okay, we'll keep it. Sounds good. Yeah. Well, since we both picked that one, I'm gonna throw fort- fortuosity onto my playlist then. Oh, you just threw it on there. Yeah, yeah. Let's tack it on. Make sure you have a, you know, an even nine because that's an even okay. number. Uh, but yeah, it plays on Main Street. It's classic. It's good. Put that on there too. Way back from the beginning of the show. Now you may call that luck, 
and you may call it fortune, but me, myself, I call it fortuosity. That's me by word. Fortuosity, me a twinkle in the eye word. Sometimes castles fall to the ground. But that's where folly clovers are found. Fortuosity. Okay, I have something written down that we passed over, and I, I just want to say it real quick because I loved this. In that documentary, going back to Mary Poppins, Roy Disney, Walt's son, as he was talking about how different the brothers were and how Richard just kind of played crazily on the piano while Rich Robert stood, you know, subdued on the sidelines, he said, Bob is a little more feed the birds, and Dick is a little more supercalifragilisticexpialidocious. <laughs> <laughs> it's true. Uh, if you like that Jungle Book and the songs, I, I think that the the live action Jungle Book and the way that they brought those songs kind of back to life um, is, I think it was wonderful. And when I first, before I even saw the movie and listened to the soundtrack of the new, um, the new one, I loved, I loved what they did with it and 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 did did it well too in a way that didn't take away from the original timbre of the song but it brought it into the 21st century yeah the documentary uh because this was about the time walt had passed like when this movie came out walt had already passed um he was able to work with them a little bit on it but uh the documentary talked about how after this movie came out and the sherman brothers were done with this project that there was some hostility toward the brothers from the studio because the employees kind of saw them as Walt's boys, quote unquote, and they felt kind of unneeded. And so that's when they left for a few years and they went to work on things like Chitty Chitty Bang Bang, which I think a lot of people assume is a Disney movie because it stars Dick Van Dyke and has music by the Sherman Brothers, but it's not. Uh, I thought that was kind of, I guess I just didn't realize that that had happened after Walt's passing. Yeah, another thing, I feel like we're really referencing this DVD, this documentary, and we are. So you should definitely see it. Um, but one of the things I love is they show a picture of them in the 70s. And it is like a caricature as far as if you were to be like, just uh, uh, dress people up like what you think they look like in the 70s. And it's like they were really clean cut in the 60s, you know, the 50s and in the 60s. And all of a sudden the 70s hit and they got like the shaggy hair and the big old bushy mustaches and like the the floral shirts and collars and you're like wow Cheech and Chong uh, <laughs> really step out but yeah they they really um, were not happy with the studio and, and the way that they were being treated and and part of it I think is because the they were under Walt's wing so much that they were sheltered I think from a lot of the corporate things that were happening around them when that protection was gone, they were really exposed to to things. Like I, I remember Richard Sherman talking about how somebody busted in their office one day and was like, "Turn in your time cards," and they were like, "What? We've never done time cards before." Now, for like you and I who work in places where that's kind of standard, it's like oh, you got you want to get paid, you got to do a time <laughs> card. But I got the feeling that previous to that, they just kind of were given a check and, and you know they they were assumed they were doing the work so you didn't have to mark your hours and you know that kind of thing yeah so you know it, it probably felt more rigid to them post walt 
Yeah, and, and and speaking of their dissatisfaction with the company, lead this um, the next two that we're going to hit were kind of the last two big projects, which were really being worked on simultaneously. Um, number eight being the Aristocats. Now, I found this interesting. I didn't even ever associate them with 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 this movie, but really only only two songs um, are theirs. That being the title song called The Aristocats and the song Scales and Arpeggios, which you'll remember with the little kittens playing on the, the piano and, and such. Um, and I think when you read some of the history of this this movie and the music and what was going on, I think you can see a little bit of that dissatisfaction with the company and maybe a little bit of pride, you know, that the studio um, and some of the execs favored some other folks' compositions and songs over for the first time over some of the stuff the Sherman brothers had, had composed. Yeah. I mean, everybody wants to be a cat is the song that sticks out for, for me. And they didn't even write it. <laughs> In fact, it's probably, I, I mean, how many did, I can't even count that many Disney movies where the entire film wasn't written by one songwriter. So yeah. this is kind of a strange case to me. This has several. Yeah. And them and, um, Let's see who everybody wants to be a cat was Floyd Huddleston and Al Rinker. And there were some others. Um, uh, well, there were some deleted songs uh, that, that were originally there. I think this song is on there. Thomas O'Malley cat. Yes. Uh, by Terry Gilkison. Is, is that the same guy that did the, I think he's the same guy that did bare necessities. Uh, I might be wrong, but um, the original says, yeah, Aristocats. They, they, the title song, and then Scales and Arpeggios. Uh, I wouldn't necessarily put it up there with like their top stuff. Uh, neither was this movie Disney's top stuff, but um, still deserve deserves a mention in this in this era. Uh, number nine is Bedknobs and Broomsticks, often called the Poor Man's Mary Poppins. <laughs> oh no, this is. Oh, this is one of my favorite Disney movies. My favorite movies ever. Mm. I love this song. I love this 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 movie and the songs. I'll, I'll let you continue before I, <laughs> I gush more. Yeah, well, it, it's a film. It, it combines the live <laughs> action with the animation, much like Mary Poppins. It features a magical nanny uh, played by Angela Lansbury. Right, she's a witch. And 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 she's and she's she's their uh, she's their caretaker in the middle of World War Two. Yeah, she's kind of forced to be a nanny. It's not her occupation. Okay, all right, we're splitting hairs, but yeah, all right. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but this features the songs. Probably most notable is "The Age of Not Believing." Is that how it, the title? Which is my third song on my Sherman Brothers playlist. Hey. Also nominated for an Oscar for Best Original Song. When you rush around in hopeless circles, searching everywhere for something true, you're at the age of not believing when all the make-believe is through. When you set aside your childhood heroes and your dreams are lost upon a shelf, you're at the age of not believing And worst of all, you doubt yourself You're a castaway What do you love about it? 
Oh, well, it's very poignant, isn't it? It's it. And, and around the time when I was kind of starting to enjoy these kind of movies, um, I had this really kind of existential epiphany when I was like, you know, 12, 13, 14. And, you know, in that time you realize you're not a little kid anymore. And it's almost like you have to convince yourself to still like little kid things so you don't get sad about growing up and having responsibilities and stuff. And, and this song perfectly captures... Um, although it's kind of sung by Angela Lansbury in the film as kind of a an up yours, you need to get over yourself kind of moment, but it's still a very it's still a very tender uh, song about about growing up and growing out of uh, you know childhood. And then is it Portobello Road? Isn't that a oh, another that's one a of the songs too. in this film? So I think those are the two main main a beautiful briny sea. Substitutionary locomotion. Yes. Okay, those, yes, I do remember that one too. This this film, I, I it's been a while since I've seen it. It's 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 good. It's not my fave. Give it a go. It's better than Mary Poppins. No, it's hilarious. Uh, at the end, when the you know the things start coming to life and they don't have control over it, and her 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 whole house just you know goes haywire because they're making all this stuff come to life. It's really funny. There's a lot of quotable moments from this i say better than mary poppins because i think the story is more cohesive i like the songs better i like the characters better obviously mary poppins will always be better in some sense just artistically and just all that it represented but i enjoy bed knobs and broomsticks better Hmm. more number 10 on our list uh we're kind of combining some but basically it's songs related to the character winnie the pooh now, I didn't realize this, but the song they wrote called Winnie the Pooh, the song you you are thinking of, the tubby little cubby all stuffed with fluff, that was written for Winnie Pooh, Winnie the Pooh, and the Honey Tree back in 1966. And then it was used again in the uh, 70s. I don't have the year written here, but the mini adventures of Winnie the Pooh. And then for that movie, they also wrote Up Down, Touch the Ground, Mm-hmm. Heffalumps and Woozles. The rain, rain, rain came down, down, down. Many of these are featured in the attraction at Walt Disney World and at Disneyland. Yeah. And then much, much later, in 2011, I want to say, Disney invited them back to collaborate with Kenny Loggins for the Tigger movie. It's 2000. 2000. Oh, wow. Way earlier than I thought. Yeah. yeah. Oh, Okay. Because 2010 was Winnie the Pooh, which they yeah. did yeah. not. They did. Oh, that's kind of sad. They were not asked to be part of Winnie the Pooh. Well, their song was used, though. Well, that's I mean, true. the primary theme song. Uh, one of my favorites, one of my favorite Winnie the Pooh songs is um, the Rumbly in My Tumbly song. I don't even know the name of it. I'm so rumbly in my tumbly. Da, 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 da. I love Winnie the Pooh. <laughs> And I feel like all the songs that they wrote are just so perfect for those stories. This they is are. number three on my playlist, and that is the Your Heart Will Lead You Home song from the Tigger movie. Uh, the Tigger movie was the first theatrically released film, Winnie the Pooh film, since The Many Adventures of Winnie the Pooh in the 70s. So there was a kind of a, a dry spot there for uh, many years of Pooh in the theater. But uh, when he returned, they they uh, brought in Kenny Loggins and they collaborated together. And 
again, this song just has so much heart to it. And it's in the title. <laughs> yes. Um, but I, I always connect this song as well. To me, it's the perfect uh, sequel to the, the um, Kenny Loggins did that song. Back to the days of Christopher Robin. Yes, yeah. that's it. Thank you. And yeah. um, it, it just complements that song so well. It has that same yeah. just lullaby almost quality to it. Yeah. If you feel lost and on your own and far from home, you're never alone, you know. Just think of your friends, the ones who care. They all will be waiting there with love to share. And your heart will lead you home. Going back to the documentary real quick, this scene kind of stands out to me because I didn't know they did work on this movie. But I remember Kenny Loggins sitting in his studio talking to the camera and he said, yeah, the Sherman Brothers came to me with this song that was like, do-do-do-do-do, and I was like, uh, no, uh, how about <laughs> this? And, and they really liked it. <laughs> that's basically what happened he played a little something on his guitar and he was like and they really liked that so we went with that <laughs> well because I think this, he talked about how the Sherman Brothers brought they, they were thinking Tigger and you know when they wrote the wonderful thing about Tiggers is Tiggers are wonderful things it's a bup 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 kind yeah. of song yeah and Kenny Loggins is not a bup 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 I'm glad you brought up that song because I think that's why I I think these are so appropriate for the movie because that movie is or that song is very bouncy. Uh, the heffalumps and woozles is very like trippy, which is what those characters are. And then the Winnie the Pooh theme song is just like whimsical and quaint, and that's what you think of when you think of Hundred Acre Woods. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and again, making up those words. I know. Humphalumps and woozles are very confusal. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, something very about confusal. if you so choosels. <laughs> It's like, all right, Bob, I see what you're doing. (laughs) Like, nothing rhymes. It's okay. Make up words. It's fine. Mm. I want to go to lunch. Just write it down. Number 11, and our last stop in the 11 times the Sherman Brothers made Disney magic, is a conglomeration of everything entitled (laughs) Epcot and Beyond. So anything and everything parks related that we have not mentioned to this point, but one of a, a, a few particular songs that stand out, um, Magic Journeys, which, gosh, help you uh, go find it on YouTube and just watch it and, and just re- remind yourself as you're watching that this was actually a thing. And this actually had took place, uh, not that <laughs> not the events on the movie, but that this was a thing in a Disney park that people went to see. Um, I mean, ultra trippy and the song suits it i don't it's one of those things where i don't like this song but sometimes i just want to listen to it because i remember from the very first uh cassette tape version of the official album of walt disney world and this was on there and i thought it was the creepiest thing when i was little uh just that classic like 70s weird minor vibe um really really strange miracles from molecules I mean, the, the, the attraction has been has been long gone. Uh, Adventures through inner space uh, out at Disneyland, Tomorrowland, 
And but but a classic sounding Sherman Brother. When you hear it, you're like, yes, this is a Sherman Brothers theme song or theme park song. Yeah. This this belongs somewhere in in the parks. And last but not least, and at least in terms of the specific ones we've mentioned here, is one that we all gush about all the time, and that is uh, one, or maybe just me, uh, one little spark from the original original Journey into Imagination attraction at Epcot, and perhaps in my mind, still the theme song of old Epcot. Yeah, I'd give you that. And and kind of jar, not jarring in a in a in a negative way, but kind of surprising that. Um, a good 20 years after their start with the Disney company, they were still pumping out those kind of songs that stick with Disney fans to this day. Yeah, I was looking up how they got involved with Epcot, because I'm like, okay, well, if they had kind of their differences with Disney, and then they came back just for the Aristocats and Bedknobs and Broomsticks, like, what made them come back five or six years later for this? And in a short interview I found, they it, it I mean, this isn't a great answer. It's, I'm not about to blow your mind or anything. But they were talking about how Walt Disney Imagineering always kept a good relationship with them. Like when they wrote stuff for the World's Fair and Tiki Room and things. And so when they asked them to do Epcot, it just felt kind of natural as opposed to the studio, the film studio. Ah, I see. Yeah. Yeah. But uh, don't forget Making Memories, also from Magic Journeys. Making Memories, which also made it on my playlist of uh, songs for the new year. It did. And one thing I learned while doing research this week is that the classic Disneyland attraction, Rocket Rods, which we've talked about on this show as being one of the most short-lived, disastrous disastrous attractions ever at a Disney park, had a theme song written by the Sherman Brothers as you exited called Magic Highways of Tomorrow. And you should listen to it on YouTube because it's super trippy and does not at all feel like a Sherman Brothers song. It's bizarre. Oh, and I also learned... Okay, so they did a special seminar or a special presentation, I guess, at Epcot's 30th this past October. And they were talking about the Sherman Brothers, and there were a few songs that the Sherman Brothers wrote for Horizons that never ended up being used. And one of them was called Tomorrow's Windows, and they had some woman come in and actually sing this lost Sherman Brothers song, and I wish I could have been there to hear it. Oh. Yeah. That's interesting, yeah. They could probably, some of their unpublished stuff, they could produce an album. Well, of all the ones we just listed, I guess One Little Spark is the only one that still plays. Well, Miracles from Molecules you can hear in the background at Tomorrowland, but One Little Spark is the only one that still plays in the attraction it was written for. Yeah. So there you go. The Sherman Brothers. Legends. Mm. No doubt. Oh, yeah. Legends, definitely worthy of the word. And I often think about the Walt Disney Company as you have Walt, which is like the central figure and you know he's no most recognizable but there's all these people that surround him that kind of lift him up and the sherman brothers are definitely in that pantheon of lifting them up almost like a greek um not greek but well we'll go with greek or roman uh painting you know that you might see of like the gods and there's uh, Zeus in the middle with all the other gods sort of supporting him and lifting him up. That is Walt Disney in the in the Disney mythology. Mm. 
Well, this has been a fun little dive into their songbook and into their lives as well. Um, of course, you can see their window on Main Street in Disneyland. If you ever go over there, they have a star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame. Uh, listeners, if you have any favorite Sherman Brothers songs that mean something to you, let us know. Of course, we mentioned some of ours, but we want to hear yours as well. You can reach us on Twitter at Mad Chatters or Instagram at Mad Chatters. You can email, as always, comments at madchatters.net. Thanks for tuning in. We'll see you next week. Maybe you had an embarrassing moment at the parks while a Sherman Brothers song was playing. There you go. I'd really want to hear about those. But in the meantime, take a little time to find the magic in every day. Adios. There's a great big beautiful tomorrow shining at the end of every day. There's a great big beautiful tomorrow and tomorrow's just a dream away. Man has a dream and that's the start. He follows his dream with mind and heart. And when it becomes a reality, it's a dream come true for you and me. So there's a great big beautiful tomorrow shining at the end of every day. There's a great big beautiful tomorrow. Just a dream away. Well, it sounds pretty good. In fact, that's just the right spirit. Our songwriters, Dick and Bob Sherman of the Walt Disney Studio. The Sherman brothers have written many of the wonderful songs for our motion pictures and television shows. And I think this song, written especially for you, captures the spirit of the General Electric Pavilion at the New York World's Fair. Thanks, boys. Thanks, Walt. Say Thanks, goodbye Walt. to the folks. Bye-bye. There's a great, big, beautiful tomorrow. <laughs> As I said, that's the spirit. <laughs>